0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be recapping episode three of Moon Knight, titled The Friendly Type. Also, I'll be giving you a brief spoiler-free review of a really exceptional new movie available in theaters right now, only in theaters, so don't look for it on streaming, not yet anyway, called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. A couple of quick reminders. Just yesterday, sorry this episode's coming so Hot on the heels of the last episode if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But we will be covering Better Call Saul on Tuesdays and probably Moon Knight on Wednesdays. So that will be the schedule for at least the next few weeks until Moon Knight wraps up. And we are halfway through the Moon Knight show. There's only six episodes, so it is coming pretty quickly. Do check the previous episode. I give you a bunch of recommendations. If you liked Severance, if you haven't watched Severance, definitely check it out. It's wrapped up now, had one of the best season finales of any show for quite a few years really sticks the landing if you think it starts a little slow trust me it is not slow at the end so listen to the buzz and give it a shot if you are not an apple tv subscriber target is still offering it for free and in that episode i do also recommend many shows you might like trippy shows that all deal with kind of the mundane dramas of life in a very trippy way Which is kind of the theme of severance and by the way is also the theme of everything everywhere all at once and i'll give you my review here make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available drop us an email at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com we have gotten some emails recently as our audience has grown around severance i do reply to every email by the way maybe not immediately but i do always reply so if you haven't gotten a reply from me and you have emailed in the past First, check that the email is correct. It's needs some, two S's, needs some, introduction at gmail.com. And check your spam folders because maybe my email went into your spam. But I always do reply. And Sona and I really love getting your emails. And another production note, I will be on vacation this upcoming week, actually on a road trip. And I will be trying to get these episodes out to you regardless on the same schedule. They may not be as well produced. And I know some of you complained about the production on the show as it is, but the production may not be as great as it is, or as mediocre, as for depending on your opinion, as it currently is, and it might be a little more conversational, but I will still be getting that content out to you, maybe not exactly in the same production schedule time, but hopefully you're enjoying your summer break, your spring breaks with your kids, and I'll give you something to listen to there if you enjoy our recaps. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection,
1: every disappointment... Let you la, 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 to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from
0: it. Okay, so to start with, I want to have my spoiler-free review, once again, for everything everywhere all at once, currently in theaters, doing very well, by the way, still in limited release and has already made quite a significant amount of money. I do think this is going to be a word of mouth hit, one of those films that comes out and just plays and plays and ends up overperforming significantly. This is a strange film that I honestly think, going in, knowing nothing about it, that I wasn't certain, even for the first half hour, if I was going to enjoy the film. And also, despite all the raves that it has been getting, almost universal critical acclaim as well as almost universal audience acclaim, a rare combination, that I honestly thought, who would I recommend this film to? Because it's such a strange combination of things. And it has such a maximalist style, and a brand that the filmmakers themselves use. But by the end, I was completely won over. Not only was I won over, I was stunned at the success that the film achieves. I briefly mentioned that Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a 10 out of 10 for me in my last episode. And just to break down my rating system, I'm not always saying that a 10 out of 10 is my favorite film. I usually rank, my ranking system depends on how ambitious a film is and how successful it is at what it is trying to do. So some films can be very entertaining, but lack in ambition. So they can never be more than an eight or something like that, even if they're nearly perfect. And other films can be extremely ambitious and I will recommend them saying like, wow, they really swung for the fences on that one but they really can't accomplish what they're trying to do. But I really admire the ambition, but I can't give them more than a six or a seven because of the completion of the task, let's say. But every once in a while, there's a film like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that is incredibly ambitious, incredibly innovative, and completely succeeds at what it's trying to do. And that could be Eternal Sunshine as one example. It could be, in my opinion, the Into the Spider-Verse animated movie. And here we have again, a film that I think is a 10 out of 10. It is a film that attempts to be a specific thing, and it's something that we have not seen before and is completely successful at it. That could be Into the Spider-Verse, that could be The Matrix, that can be Fight Club, but a film that tries to, in some minor way, change the language of cinema, and it works. And it not only works on a level of construction, but it works emotionally with the audience. I had a strong emotional reaction to this film at the end, it in many ways, beat me into submission. <laughs> All for the good. It, it's, it's exceptional. Okay, so I'm overpraising it maybe now. I went in blind, so I was not expecting what I got. And honestly, I am going to give you a full review here. And I've probably maybe already set your expectations too high, but I would recommend just go see it and leave your expectations at the door because this is a stupid, silly, over-the-top, comedic, hilariously, hilariously comedic film. And just when you think that's all you're gonna get, just a lot of butt jokes, (laughs) it's so much more. And the fact that the film could make that pivot is part of its charm and part of its incredible achievement. So what's the film about? It's about Michelle Yeoh, who you may know as, she's been around forever. She's been in a James Bond film. She's been in multiple Marvel films. She was recently, she's maybe a bigger star now than ever before. In Crazy Rich Asians. And if you know Jackie Chan at all, there's probably a very famous stunt you know where his female co-star drives a motorcycle, a real motorcycle, onto a real moving train. And that was Michelle Yeoh all those years ago. So young at the time. Amazing. She's been around forever. And still just stunningly beautiful and such a great actress as well. And she gives a great performance here, as does everybody, actually. The main cast here are all exceptional. Michelle Yeoh, Stephanie, Sue as... Her daughter, someone who I do not think I've seen in anything before, and she was very, very strong here, playing many different characters, honestly. Everybody has to play many different characters when we start breaking down what the plot is. You'll see why. James Hong, in a relatively small role, just still great, still amazing. He's in his 90s now, still has so much gravitas, and, I mean, he's been around. I remember seeing him in Big Trouble in Little China. That is 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. It's pretty incredible that he's still around. He probably was very active even before then, considering his age. And most impressively of all, I did not know this actor. I couldn't place him. I recognized him vaguely and could not place him. But Michelle Yeoh's husband in the film is played by Ki-Hyu Kwan, who is short round from the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom movie. And he was also in the Goonies and other films as well. But honestly has just disappeared. I literally had to look him up on IMDb to see what he's been doing in these years in between. And he's honestly pretty much disappeared after that brief fame He had a string of movies when he was very young, and I think he was on a couple of sitcoms back in the 90s, early 90s. And that's pretty much it on his resume. And now here he is, maybe 30 years after disappearing, at least from American screens. I don't know if he's been working in other places. And boy, what a great performance he gives here. So yeah, just incredible across the board. And from the writers and directors, Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who famously or infamously started their career directing Swiss Army Man back about five years ago. That's the movie with the flatulating corpse. That's right. Harry Potter, Daniel Radcliffe, plays a flatulating corpse (laughs) in that movie. And they make their reputation on that film. Another film that intentionally, almost like a skit on a more adult version of Saturday Night Live, starts with a really ridiculous premise and then not only continues to double down on it and double down on it and double down on it to a ridiculous extent, as it continues to expand the... Joke, the joke becomes some broader metaphor. And just like that film, this film eventually develops emotional stakes and surprises you with what it's trying to say and where it's trying to go in its storytelling. And I would say that is more of a stunt, although a successful one. And it really was a calling card for them, made their reputation. But this film takes that to the next degree. It's so much bigger, it's so much more ambitious, it's so much more well constructed. And the emotional payoff here. Is so strong. So finally, to get into what this film is about, Michelle Yeoh is the owner of a laundromat who's trying to throw a Chinese New Year slash birthday party for her dad, and she's being audited by a very mean IRS agent played by Jamie Lee Curtis. And that's the plot of the film. (laughs) Believe it or not, that's the plot of the film. But what ends up happening is, on the way to the audit, she's intercepted by a different version of her husband from another multiverse, telling her that the whole entire universe, all universes, are at risk by this evil being, an evil being that has been able to infiltrate every single multiverse and will basically destroy all these worlds. So in some ways, it feels like a comic book movie, in this plot anyway. And the only person who can keep this from happening is Evelyn, played by Michelle Yeoh. And what happens at that point is we start seeing all these different universes branching out from Evelyn's own life. She can actually see other permutations of herself if she had made other decisions. Decisions when she was younger. Decisions when she was older. Decisions just minutes ago. And before I get into, into any more of the plot, let me just generally talk about the film. First of all, this has been almost unanimously praised, but I do want to call out the negative, the few negative uh, comments here because they usually harp on one point. And I normally won't, wouldn't go and seek out negative reviews for something, just because they were so rare, I was curious to read them, but also because I sympathize with the negative reviews. When I sat down to watch this film, I felt like it was so chock-a-block full of details that I did feel overwhelmed. And also I felt that this over-the-top style was a little too in my face. It was a little too over-the-top. It was trying too hard to get my attention, let's say. Something I usually don't like. So I understand where some of the negative commentary came from. I didn't read these reviews until after the fact, but it's funny. I was sympathetic for the first half hour. I literally was checking my wa- uh, clock going like, wow, this is over two hours long. I'm only half an hour in and I am maybe a little exhausted by this film already. And I only call that out because I came so fully around on the film. I think that is the point of the f- the film itself, that life itself, not only for Michelle Yeoh and this character, but for us, for all of us right now, especially at this moment in time that it just seems like every day, the mundanities of life, the demands of paying your bills and worrying about gas prices and taking your kids to school and all just the little tiny cuts, these little tiny exhausting cuts of living our lives every single day really saps the pleasure out of our lives. And the film in a way represents that as well. It's just one tedious detail after another, after another, just compounding over and over again. And even though a lot of these details are pretty funny because you can probably relate to a lot of them, It still felt like too much, just way too much for me. And I can't imagine this film maintaining this pace for this period of time. It's basically how I felt while I was watching it. And then what ends ends up happening is that as if it's a metaphor for life itself, the film beats you with all of this information overload. But then at some point, you start to almost get to a zen point where you're floating above it. You're no longer trying to parse all the things that are being thrown at you. You simply start to accept them. And then you start seeing the humor, you start seeing these patterns repeating, the same motifs, the same jokes coming back at you over and over again, and you start to just absorb it and feel it without parsing it too closely. So the film puts you in the state of mind you need to be in to receive the message at the end, and all of this, that's the amazing thing about it, is that all of this is to take you to a place, some might say a very naive place, to be honest with you, but I think there is no doubt that there is so much affection for these characters, and honestly, such a positive and life-affirming message at the end of this film that, I mean, I was moved. I was moved to tears, to be honest with you. I almost needed to be beaten down. (laughs) I almost needed to be beaten down by the pace of the film to get to that point. Now, all that being said, you may think this is a bludgeoning or difficult film. It is not. There are so many jokes in this, on top of the fact that this film is one of the most emotionally relevant, resonant films I've seen In years, it's also hysterically funny. It has a bagel joke, a bagel joke, the greatest bagel joke of all times. It is so hilarious, you have to see this movie. Uh, And it keeps doubling down on every one of these jokes. It has the greatest, the greatest Ratatouille joke of all times. And it doesn't just become a joke; they build on it until it pays off emotionally in the film. It is incredible what they're able to do here. And so, I can't compliment it enough. And everything I'm saying makes no sense and is very vague, but you have to see the film. And I'm intentionally not spoiling the film for you. So, I'm trying to tease you into seeing this film without spoiling it. One more thing I want to bring up on the side of the positive reviews, especially now that I do this podcast and I'm writing reviews in my mind anyway and presenting them here for you, I don't get to read as much criticism as I used to in the past because it just seems like, you know, there's just so much time to commit to a lot of these things but I did track down some reviews some very positive reviews of this and I did want to give you my personal experience with the film just to speak to how universal this appeal of this film is in relation to a few Chinese American critics like Walter Chaw for one from Film Freak Central I would say you should read his review very much so it's a very personal review about how he had a very personal reaction to this film and he's talking about being represented as a Chinese-American whose parents had this immigrant experience and lived this kind of day-to-day struggle, and how it was, you know, the language of the film, the imagery of the film was so utterly personal to him, and it's very powerful to read his review. And I think I've read more than one Chinese critic, Chinese-American critic, who feels seen by this movie in a way. And of course, one of the dance, not of course, but one of the dance is Chinese-American and has... This kind of speaks to his biography when he was younger, this film, which he co-directed and co-wrote. And you can feel it in the film that all these details are very, very authentic. But what I want to talk about is the fact that I am not a Chinese-American immigrant. However, my parents were immigrants. We were immigrants from Portugal, and I grew up in an immigrant family, and we did not own a small business. But regardless, I felt all these things personally, to me, this felt like the compromises you make as an immigrant or your parents made, it makes me, in short, sympathetic to my parents' immigrant experience in a way I have not before. So I just wanted to throw that in there because I want to speak to the fact that this film, and I mentioned this before in a different review, but the best thing you can do in presenting a story to your audience is be specific and detailed as much as possible. Because if you present your story as outlandish as it is with emotional truth and with specificity, you will find a universal audience. You can be universal in your specificity. So that's my opinion. And I think this film is a great example of it. And you should go see it as soon as you can. It may not be available for streaming for, I mean, at this point, I mean, the Batman is coming out this week after only a month and a half, maybe. So it is possible that this thing will be available for home viewing within the next month or so. But I do hope it, if it continues to play well in theaters that they do let it stay out there. It is a movie to be seen on the big screen. And before I leave, I, just, just a few things. Let me let me pull up my notes here. There's just so many things I want to bring up here. From the construction of the film. And once again, it reminds me of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. That one directed by Michel Gondry, the French director. Almost definitely an influence, his style on the Daniels. But boy, the, these guys are in, so astoundingly talented and as i mentioned in a previous podcast i was an aspiring filmmaker at one time just a hobbyist mostly but would have loved to have had that as a career and i have made short films and i have experimented with special effects etc so i have some understanding of how complicated it is to construct these type of things and trust me the complexity in assembling this film is astounding there are moments here where you see a character begin an action In one multiverse and literally as they move their body whenever they move to a certain position they move to another multiverse so imagine that it it is something that is happening subconsciously you appreciate it on the screen that's the incredible thing about it you see everything they're doing it is so painstakingly handcrafted like literally handcrafted it feels like some of these special effects were made by hand and as the consumer of this visually you feel All of the work that is there, but it passes in a flash of a second. It's something you feel rather than you break down in your mind. It's almost what happens subconsciously. Incredibly well done. But the complexity of that, to be able to take this shot where characters are fighting, for example, with each other across multiverses, literally flashing forward and backwards as they pass through these different multiverses, and to have to match that all up and to think about it ahead of time. From the little research I've done on this film uh, from the Daniels and their commentary, it seems like the biggest, and this is a lesson I want everybody to take away from this if you are an aspiring filmmaker, especially if you're younger, the biggest asset they had in assembling this film was time. So they did this during the pandemic. They shot it earlier in the pandemic. I think they took a break, shot a little bit more at the end of the pandemic, but basically in between almost two years of assembling this film. So the big commodity they had, and the big commodity you all have as young folks out there, young creators, is time. And that's what they did. They assembled this thing. They edited it. They knew what they wanted in their minds, and they had the time to assemble it. They didn't do it in a week. They didn't do it in a month. They did it over the course of years. And they probably spent years planning it out to be able to get that level of detail. So time is the most precious thing you could have. You as young creators have time. (laughs) So use that time wisely is basically what I would say. The other incredible thing is, speaking of their construction, is not only the technical construction of this, but the story construction of this. They are building a very complex mythology. No one's sitting down and having an information dump. You're learning this mythology through the interactions of the characters. Maybe there's a couple of information dumps. I take that back. There's a couple of scenes that do the perfunctory information dump thing. But most of it is the stakes themselves are defined through the character interactions. And all of this world building is happening... At a very personal level like these camera shots are almost always like on characters faces and that's another important thing is unlike maybe a michael bay movie for example just one example of this kind of style of filmmaking the movie never takes a breath you can never connect with the characters and what's so incredible about here is you have this frenetic film style but when the characters are talking to each other you are totally there you're totally with them you're emotionally vested in the dynamics at that moment and it's really incredible how they do this and the last thing that it shocks me about the success of this film is you see Jamie Lee Curtis, you see Michelle Yeoh, Michelle Yeoh giving an incredible performance, of course, everybody giving an incredible performance, and Jamie Lee Curtis really just a supporting role, giving an extremely unflattering performance, by the way. And what I think about is how did the Daniels, how did the Daniels get these people on board? This film on paper could have been a complete and utter train wreck, a disaster for their careers like a joke that people would make in the future. And somehow maybe it's just their passion or maybe it's just the incredible amount of talent they have that they were able to sit down with these folks and get them to buy in on their vision because thank God they did because this is like a miracle of a film, a little miracle of a film. I mean, it it honestly gives me hope for the future (laughs) of filmmaking, I should say, (laughs) specifically filmmaking, because I do think, and there's one more hyperbole I'm going to throw at you. I do think this is going to change film language a little bit. I mean, I I say this in the same way that, for example, Fight Club or The Matrix changed filmmaking a little bit. And, you know, my point is that you would never think of telling this type of personal story in this style. And I think now you just simply, especially if the film is as successful as I think it eventually will become, you give filmmakers licenses. it, It gives the license to filmmakers to take bigger risks, to try something different and also to allow film studios to produce some of these quirkier ideas with smaller budgets and that's the thing this film looks like it cost a fortune to make but it wasn't it was all DIY and all very personally handcrafted and we need more of that we need more of films that take risks who that reinvent the wheel a little bit to take some chances and the audience will come the audience will find the film if it's good Now, then, if there's going to be a bunch of imitators of this film, they're not all going to be good. (laughs) Just the way that all those Tarantino imitators never really succeeded where Tarantino has, over the course of his career, or the Matrix knockoffs, or, or the things that people took from the Matrix movies, like just the bullet time without any of the other artistry, wasn't always a success. But I do think, in some small way, this is a small landmark, and we haven't seen a film like this in a few years, at least. And one last thing, the film in the end, thematically, is about at the darkest moments, that we should not give up hope. And that most importantly is that if we give everybody their respect as fellow human beings and we just treat them that way, just acknowledge their humanity, that the world would be a better place. And I think about the circumstance right now with the Ukraine and just other ugly political forces in the world that gain their power by intentionally othering us from each other, by intentionally trying to erase the humanity of someone else just for a slight political gain, just to have an excuse to put a little more money in your pocket or just an excuse to gain some political power. And this film is literally, open-heartedly, an attack on that way of thought. And I think it's a message we all need to hear right now.
1: Not worried you might have burnt too many bridges. All those stolen relics and cheeky antiques. I don't steal. They've already been stolen. That's what people forget. Fine. Take them off the black market and return them to their rightful owners. I might keep a few to pay the bills.
0: Never you. Okay, so on to the Moon Knight review, the friendly type. And I'm not actually sure what this title means. Unless they're talking about Steven. I'm a big fan of just watching process happen, seeing how something gets made or something gets done. That's what I kind of really like about Steven Soderbergh's movies. For example, most popularly, the Ocean's Eleven, Ocean's films in general. Seeing the con be orchestrated or just seeing something get built, someone who's skillful at something doing something. It's another thing I really like about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. So that's just a digression to mention why I really like the first scene here in this episode of Moon Knight. We see May Kalamawi playing Layla with a friend, a mom, I don't know who this is, but an older woman who apparently has been assisting her for a very long time, and they're making fake passports, or they're making a fake passport for her. And through their conversation, we find out that she is headed to Egypt. And we already know from last week's episode that Stephen slash Mark are already there. We get a little interesting insight into her philosophy. She doesn't feel she's stealing these artifacts if they've already been stolen. But she does mention she keeps a couple of them for herself, just to make ends meet. And we also find out here, briefly, a little bit of her history about her fallen father, which we'll hear a little bit more hinted at, even more so later in the episode. Next, we're in the desert. I believe we are shooting in the Egyptian desert. They definitely shot in Egypt. The show is definitely shot in Egypt. I believe they're using the Egyptian desert here. And we see Ethan Hawke as Harrow with the scarab as a compass, has located Amet's burial location. Meanwhile, we see Oscar Isaac, currently in Mark persona, chasing some bad guys across rooftops and wants to know where the dig site is. They start a knife fight. Stephen tries to take back control of the body because he doesn't like all this violence. Although I'm not sure what the alternative would be in this specific case, (laughs) Stephen. They are pulling knives on you. But something very interesting happens. Mark loses control of the body. And when it comes back, he sees that he has killed one of these folks. And soon thereafter, when he encounters them again, they're terrified of him. But this isn't Mark, because he just lost control of the body. And it obviously, from what we've seen, is not Steven either. And Steven denies it later. So there is yet another persona we have not met. And that's interesting that some other persona yet is manipulating both of them. And as you'd expect from what I just said, the location of the site is unknown, at least to Mark and Steven perhaps known to the other persona. By the time Mark returns to the body, he's in a cab, headed towards the airport. And this is something I did miss in the last episode. I'm glad they brought it back, that not only do we now have this unreliable narrator, even unreliable to himself, but that now these two personas we've been introduced to are both being potentially manipulated by yet another persona. So this is an interesting turn of events. After yet another chase and fight sequence, we have only one of these thieves left, the youngest. Kanso has the brilliant idea of Dangling him off the edge of the cliff, and that'll make him talk. But of course, he's a true believer, (laughs) and uh, they don't get the information they need. They need to find that location, and Mark suggests they speak to the other gods. Are they really going to be okay with re-resurrecting Amit? And Kansu orchestrates this conversation between the avatars of these different Egyptian gods via a spontaneous eclipse? I would suspect if I suddenly had an unexpected full eclipse occur... This would be a very, very traumatic event. It would be all over the news. But then again, this is a universe where the snap has has occurred. (laughs) So maybe these people are pretty nonplussed until you have a full-on alien invasion. Another interesting sequence, now that we've had this eclipse, it raises the alarm of the other gods. And all the avatars meet. They meet within the Pyramid of Giza. And we see that for the first time, Kansu has full control over Mark's body. And the gods get to speak directly to each other here. And Mark honestly makes a pretty terrible case here. Harrow shows up and says, you know what Kansu did to me. You know how manipulative he is. You know what a drama queen that guy is. <laughs> you know, spontaneous eclipses and other sky manipulations that we'll see later. And they're like, yeah, you didn't make a good enough case that Ahmet's being raised. And the argument that Harrow makes that he's just like, well, I was just hanging out in the desert. Is that is that so wrong? Which, of course, is very, very questionable, considering why didn't Mark mention he's got the scarab? The scarab. Why did he take the scarab? Why did he kill people for that scarab? So, Mark is definitely not a lawyer. And they warn Khonsu that if he manipulates this guy again, he's going to be banished. Trapped in stone. Apparently, in this conversation, also, the gods have committed themselves to not interfere anymore in worldly affairs. But the Amma thing seems to be a reason for alarm. Part of the reason that Mark loses his case here is he admits that he does have a mental illness. But once again, that scarab is a big piece of evidence that he could have easily thrown in there. Mark does get a clue to go track down a sarcophagus that might have another map to the location of Ahmed's body. And while he's questioning some people who might know how to get in touch with this collector, he runs it to Layla, who already knows where to go. They have a little alone time. You get to see them rekindle a little bit of their romance here on a boat ride to the locale.
1: Could have told me, you know, what it's been like for you
0: about Stephen.
1: For what it's worth, I had her under control until very recently. What happened? This doesn't matter. We could have handled it together. Yeah. That's not really what i do is it i never really been able to just talk about everything anything real yes i know that doesn't mean that we shouldn't
0: have and this collector's uh, name is mogart Layla seems to have a lot of knowledge of this guy and uh, he's a good looking guy so uh, but Mark is not too jealous about this or doesn't give off those vibes although he does think that his uh, ostentatious training is a little much so, so there's some horseplay here literally and he does have the sarcophagus very prominently displayed and Mark awkwardly says oh I'd love to see it without any real reason they just let him look at it even though he supposedly is a specialist at this and yeah, so this whole thing's kind of weird that they just let him kind of walk over there take a look at it in the reflection, Stephen starts talking to Mark and telling him how to manipulate or fold the included paper. Is this paper? Papyrus? Whatever it might be. To create some kind of star chart. And of course, this leads to a confrontation when people say, what are you touching that? And you know, we didn't trust you, etc. This whole scene, once again, this whole thing is a pretty contrived and a little bit weirdly constructed. It really feels rushed. It just feels rushed. The way they've developed this, they, it could, this could have been done much more elegantly. They try to explain to Mogart that there's actually a map there's actually a map in there you've been looking for this it's real but then that's where Arthur Harrow shows up once again Ethan Hawke and he starts messing with their heads
1: I settle for a clue when you can have the treasure Anton Anton don't listen to this man he's trying to
0: stop us from reaching please stop he's gonna kill millions trust me
1: are you seriously talking about trust please there's no need to descend into violent accusations each one of you has so much more in common than you know Layla, you keep thinking that distance will prevent the wounds from your father's murder from reopening. But something stands in your way. Your husband doesn't tell you the truth. And Mark, you don't tell her because you know that if you do, she'll see you exactly as you see yourself, as unworthy of love. Piece of shit, Anton. Surrounding these relics I offer proof that it's real This sarcophagus Doesn't belong to anyone
0: Which makes me suspect That Mark, mercenary Mark Perhaps killed her father Was he a target? Was it accidental? During one of these ransackings Of one of these archaeological lo- uh, digs And also taunts Mogart that you have all these artifacts, but I can show you real magic. And he shows the real magic the staff can provide by s- blowing up the sarcophagus. <laughs> to which Mogart is not upset about. I mean, like I'd be pretty upset if I have a one-of-a-kind sarcophagus that's got blown up. But he takes it all in stride. And this works. It gets his men to turn on Mark. Mark turns into Moon Knight. There is a funny sequence here where Steven thinks, We have to stop fighting. You have to give me control of the body. He turns into the nicely dressed, the gentleman version of Moon Knight. And then, of course, gets immediately impaled multiple times <laughs> and says, Okay, Mark, you have control of the body. So, a funny little aside, but I think its only purpose served here is to give you to put Mark on the ropes as Moon Knight. We do see some of Moon Knight's powers. He's able to capture bullets with his cape, he's impervious to damage with the suit on. Layla also shows herself to be a very strong fighter. And just as Layla is about to get a death blow, Moon Knight escapes, kills all the guards around him, rescues Layla and appears to kill mogart although he seems to be riding off into the distance so perhaps not and i have a theory there i believe that he may have died and maybe will be inhabited by yet another god or maybe this will be the body in which amit resides so that remains to be seen but i think that is my speculation he will be an avatar for one of these gods most likely Amit, now that i think about it a little more and a little sad trivia by the way This actor, Gaspard Ulliel, a French actor. I think he was a model originally and then an actor. This is really his big breakout role. And just this January, just this past winter, just as the trailer for Moon Knight first was released, he died. He died in a skiing accident. So very sad that he would probably have had a moment of breakout here, probably his biggest notoriety outside of France, I should say. And unfortunately, he did die in a skiing accident. Now Layla and Mark escape. Layla asks, what was Harrow talking about? What was all those things he was mentioning? And of course, Mark wants to change the subject. As I suspect, his secret probably intersects with her past. And they're unable, they have taken the pieces of this star map from the sarcophagus, but they can't piece it together. So Mark allows Stephen to take control and build the map correctly. But the constellation doesn't make sense. She takes a picture of it with her iPad. There is an iPad app, by the way, that does tell you what constellations something is. They don't give you the geographical coordinates based on date and time, however. (laughs) But maybe this is special software she has. But they build the constellation, but it doesn't match any constellation in the sky because of course, stars drift over time, and this is thousands of years ago. And then Kanchu shows up and says, well, I can rewind the sky to 2000 years ago so we can find a match. And she is able to find the location. Once again, I was thinking maybe this is just an illusion, just an illusion of the sky. It's not actually changing. It's just something that they're experiencing in the periphery or in the general location of Khonshu. But nope, we see people all over Egypt freaking out (laughs) that the sky is rewinding very quickly. And once again, well, I mean, could you imagine this happening that your days are rewinding, days, years, months rewinding? Everybody would just think it was the end of the world. But once again, this is a world (laughs) where we've had the snap, we've had the Eternals, we've had all these other crazy things. So I guess people just roll with the punches at this point. This, however, is a problem. Because explicitly, the gods told him, when they had their avatar conference inside the pyramid, that messing with the sky, again, was going to get him encased in stone. Kanshu knows this is going to happen, and tells Stephen, who's in control of the body at this moment, to make sure that Mark comes and rescues him. And indeed, that's what happens. Kanshu gets encased in a stone form, and Harrow is there, and happens to ask, Do you think he can hear me? And one of the other avatars says, Yes, I believe he can which leads to a one-sided conversation from Harrow to the stone Kanshu, which is really fascinating, a really interesting insight into Harrow's mindset. Can I tell you a secret? I
1: enjoyed dealing out pain in your behalf. That is the greatest sin I carry. I am grateful. Had you not broken me so completely, I might never have known the value of healing. I'm going to do what you could not. Then when it's finished, I want you to remember one thing. Your torment forged me. I owe my victory to you.
0: And that's pretty much where we leave the episode. So what are my feelings about it? I feel I can continue to be conflicted on the show. There are definitely parts of it that I find very interesting. But honestly, in large part, the way the show is constructed, I just can't get into the flow of this show. Maybe it would work better as a binge. So maybe if you're not watching the show right now, and most of you are probably watching this week to week as I am, but maybe if you're waiting to watch it, maybe binge it at the end because maybe that's how you can see the shape of this thing all in one shot and at six episodes maybe you couldn't just watch it as like one long movie because here we are halfway into this thing and a lot of events have occurred a lot of characters have been introduced there's some interesting thematic stuff here especially when it comes to harrow's mindset and his mission but i just feel like it's very poorly served in the way the story is being told i think that the scenes seem rushed uh there are some very contrived events just to call out this specific episode. The way that they have to see the sarcophagus and they just get off of this boat and walk across a field and then the sarcophagus is just sitting there in plain sight. I mean, do they just have armed guards around it 24 7? It all seems just so that they can get through that scene as quickly as possible. And I'm like, why? Why are we why is there such a rush for this? It would be more fun to have them James Bond the thing and go in in black tie and tuxedo and sneak into the sarcophagus room or something and have a whole sequence inside of another a different location all of this just seems weird in the way it's rushed in its construction but then there are things i really like i like the wife character i like oscar's isaac's performance at least when he's in the mark persona i definitely like him i like the design of the moonlight character although he's not great in the fight sequences not yet anyway I haven't seen a really good fight sequence with him in it yet and primarily, I really like the Ethan Hall character. I like his motivations. I like some of this mythology. And then there's really strange things like having him rewind the sky and artificially create an eclipse, which is <laughs> such a huge, <laughs> exaggerated uh, display of power that you figure there could be something more subtle that wouldn't be so ostentatious that <laughs> it has world-spanning implications just to set up a meeting with the gods or something. It's a little weird for me. It's uh, So if you are a diehard fan of this show, I hope I'm not turning you off in my opinion because I still am interested in seeing how it all goes and there are still enough things here that keep me interested. But I just feel like this isn't bad. I just feel like this could have been so much better with a little more thought, a little more style, a little more ambition. Anyway, we're only halfway through. Maybe some of those things I'm critical of will all be fleshed out in more detail towards the end. But I still feel almost every single episode, even at 45 minutes or so, seems a little bloated, like has a little extra in the middle just to drag the episode out. And then it feels rushed. We dragged it out to have another action sequence and then that action sequence seems very rushed. And then, so what was the point of that? Uh, Anyway, let me know what you think. Email me, needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. I'm also going to try to see if there's time to get feedback from Nick as well and i will repost the episode with that additional feedback if i am able to get that interview before i go on vacation otherwise i'll be touching base with him sometime in the future and get his feelings on the rest of those just a reminder as well i do hope to at some point in the future get his opinion on the batman movie which he'll be watching on hbo max it is premiering next week on hbo max so do watch that and check out my review of that film in this same feed Catch up on Severance if you haven't already. Excellent, excellent show. We will also be covering Better Call Saul week to week in this same feed starting on Tuesday. So stick around for all of that. I hope you're enjoying this show more than I am. I'm still on board. Still on board. And we're halfway through. Three more weeks to go. Make sure you get notifications turned on on your podcatcher of choice so that you know if I repost this episode. Until then, check out my list of recommendations if you were a fan of severance in the most recent episode. Hopefully you find something there that you want to watch if you're looking for something else to watch. I'll talk to you soon.